Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 53 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Welcome to the second year. Can't believe we're kicking it off with Sierra Hall as well. And it's a two-parter. Um, we talked for a few hours, and there was just no way to make this one episode. It would have been so long. Um, so I divided it up, and it's good stuff. Uh, I want to thank Sierra for being so gracious with her time. Um, it was really, really, uh, really, really nice for her to, to spend that much time talking mandolin with us here. So um, it's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. And you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin, Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin, and the new Bluegrass Fingerboard Method with Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites, and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe Style Mandolin with Mike Compton, Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman, Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish Mandolin with Marla Feibish, and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. Get the first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word. And also Northfield Mandolins. Building some amazing stuff. Um, you know, obviously, Adam Steffi had nothing but great stuff to say about them on that last episode. So be sure to go over to check out Northfield's incredible website. It's just great photos, great stories. So let's build more than a mandolin together, Northfield. You can find all the links there to all these sponsors at mandolinsofbeer.com. Also, this episode, uh, my buddy Caleb Christopher Edwards, who you might remember from episode number four of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, he also plays in Runa, Lateral Blue, and he's got a, an incredible solo album called Metamorphosis. And the guy is an incredible player. Um, go to his Instagram and scroll back through there and check out some of the videos of his playing. Um, he, his, he just oozes soul in playing, and his technique is ridiculous. Well, he's starting a virtual mandolin class in August, and he's going to be doing them each month. But this month for August, he's going to be doing – there's a guitar and a mandolin one. They're complete. They're two separate classes – It'll be a four-part series on technique, uh, basic music theory, basic ear training, rhythm, and tunes. And anyone who's interested can go to calebplaysmandolin.com forward slash lessons and mention mandolins and beer, and you get 10% off the course. Um, and he's going to be doing some courses in the future as well. So he's going to be doing an intro to bluegrass mandolin, a Celtic mandolin one, rhythm mandolin, and intro to improvisation. And again, he's an incredible player. So those are going to be great, um, and it starts up this Saturday. Again, go to his website, calebplaysmandolin.com forward slash lessons, and mention Mandolins of Beer. You get 10% off. I'll also have a link at my uh, page, mandolinsofbeer.com. You can also go there. I'm, I am now officially sold out of hats. I've got more hats on order. Thank you guys so much for ordering the trucker hats. More XL shirts are coming as well. I believe I've got mediums and larges in stocks uh, still. Um... What else is going on? Oh, the Patreon. I just uploaded three new videos. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, again, the best thing you could do is free is just is be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook. But if you got the extra got the extra couple dollars a month, if you want to put it towards there, you can go to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash mandolins and beer. And you can either do the $4 um, 
donation, and that is just supporting the podcast, or for $8 a month, you have access to a bunch of videos and tabs. And um, and I'm going to announce something about that later, but uh, I, I will, uh, I'm going to wait. There's a 10-minute-a-day thing I, uh, I want to talk to you all about, but I'm going to wait just a little bit longer before I announce that. And I'm also excited to announce the Track by Track series is going to be happening every other weekish. And the first one coming up here this Friday, I'll announce it on my Instagram, who it's with, um, tomorrow. Wednesday? Today. Today is Wednesday. And this is when this is coming out. And I am stoked. It was an, it was an incredible conversation. And you'll love the guest. You'll know the guest. Uh, he, was a, he was a guest earlier in the uh, podcast series as well. He's definitely well known. So let's get into this interview with Sierra Hall. Thank you guys so much for making this an incredible, incredible journey. And uh, I'm excited for what the next year brings. Cheers, everybody. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, the one-year anniversary episode podcast, actually, Sierra Hall. Sierra, how you doing? Hey, hey. I'm great. How you doing? Man, I'm doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. I've uh, I found myself with lots of time on my hands lately. So. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, huh? How have you you've been um, keeping keeping busy? I bet though. I did see you on one of the. Uh, I bought the pay per view, the Billy Strings one that you played on, and that was incredible. Oh, nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. No, I've actually been really busy. All things considered, I mean, being home has been really amazing in a lot of ways and um you know it took me a little bit to kind of figure out I, I think as all this kind of started you know I was just getting ready to go out on a really long tour with my new album that had just come out and all that just went away so I I went from thinking I was not going to be home for the next two months essentially at all <laughs> to suddenly <laughs> like I'm home you know, for the foreseeable future. So it's, it, you know, you kind of have to shift gears and kind of go, okay, well now, you know, yeah, you, you spend all this time kind of investing in um, going out on your tour and, and getting geared up for that and working on the material and, you know, just getting in that headspace. So it's sort of been a little bit of a transition to just shift into, you know, really being in the present and what does that mean and, and how to kind of invest my time and energy right now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I'm still figuring that out, but, but yeah, there's, there's wonderful things about it though, for sure. When is the last time that you actually had this much time off the road? Because it seems like you spend an awful lot of time traveling and playing music. Yeah. I mean, um, never in my adulthood have I had this much time. Yeah. Um, wow. I, think I mean I started touring and doing gigs here and there at least traveling I say touring you know traveling and and doing some things on the weekends and some festivals in the summer you know from a really young age so I mean looking back I certainly have not had this this time at home in my adulthood um but you know what feels like you know 15 years or something crazy <laughs> So it's got to be kind of nice a little bit, but yeah, I, it's shifting gears, I can't imagine. I know, I was going to say, I'm doing stuff like, you know, growing growing a little garden, as I think most of us musicians are that are off the road these days, and having time to do things um, at home that I just don't have the opportunity to do otherwise. So that's been really nice, for sure. And um, we'll talk about your new album in a minute, but you've also 
been on two pieces of music. One, I've listened to so many times and, and actually went and bought the book and learned it was the um, the Old Beveled Mirror on Hartford album oh, yeah. that just came out. Yeah. Holy moly. song in particular oh oh thank you yeah it's such a great uh record and and such a cool thing to you know for the family to have discovered these just notebooks filled full of like for anybody that doesn't know about this project it's um a john hartford project with all of his instrumental tunes i say all of them it's nowhere near all of them they found (laughs) tons of them but they 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 chose a selection of of um tunes that john had notated in these notebooks that they found and um they just started going through them his daughter um and matt combs um and i forget who all you know several people involved in this this project matt was kind of my direct contact um for for being a part of this but um just amazing tunes that had never been recorded and that people hadn't heard so um, you know, they reached out about having me be be part of this and sent me the book, and I got to kind of look through a lot of this stuff. And um, um, this tune in particular was one they they actually chose. So um, I started checking it out, and I didn't realize at the time, um, but when I started working on it, I later, you know, realized from Matt that this tune is kind of unlike most anything John had written before. So you know, it almost feels like a um, a Shoro piece, but mm-hmm. I kind of also felt like it had uh, bits of classical in there too, that as a solo mandolin piece, it felt really nice and beautiful. So I just had a lot of fun working on it. Yeah. Did you, did you have a lot of time to work up the version that you did prior to going into the studio? Well, so actually I recorded everything at home. Oh, did so you really? So that's the first time that I had ever, re- that I had ever really done that. Yeah. So um, I was just touring at that point. This was, I did all this before the Corona stuff happened which is kind of funny because I've been recording at home more than ever with all this time but but you know I I I have a setup here at my house and my husband Justin's a musician and and also um does a lot he does a lot of recording at home for people um just playing multiple things and so I was just in the middle of kind of a crazy this was at the beginning of the year and and the year was already feeling really busy so I just was working on the piece um, when I would be on the road and just, you know, I'm a really slow reader too. So actually trying to like get through, just learning the piece that way was really fun. Um, as well, just, just a good, good challenge for me to, to have another thing to like, you know, get me back to practicing reading. Um, and especially like all of the notations by hand. So there's certain things where like some of the notes don't even have stem, they don't even have stems and you're kind of like, wait, is that really what he meant? And, you know, <laughs> so just like kind of like, like, and it's, it's beautiful in that way to get to really completely interpret something. So it's probably the first thing that I've ever sat down like that and learned and interpreted and felt completely free to make it whatever it needed to be arrangement wise and stuff, you know, of course that was with the blessing of, of Matt and, 
uh, Katie and the, the family, you know, to just say, just take this and do what you think you, you know, it, sh- it should be. And, uh, and, you know, having no reference, nothing to really listen to. Yeah. That was wondering um, so if that, that was, was fun the case. In that, in that regard. Yeah. So I basically, I just worked on it when I was, yeah, I worked on it when I was on the road and then I came home and, um, just decided I wanted to try to just record it at home. And so I started with just, you know, the, the lead mandolin. And then, uh, I think I ended up adding two other mandolins. So you actually hear three mandolins and an octave mandolin. So there's like four different parts, but they're all just, just layered. Um, so yeah, it was really fun to get to do that. It's just beautiful. I was listening to the, I had the whole album on and I was going through like a walk in my neighborhood here and that one happened to come on while I was walking through this little area where there's these like little lakes. You kind of go over the small bridge on and um, I was just like, stop me in my tracks. I'm like, Oh, who is, who's doing this version? And uh, I think I listened Aww. to it the, the rest of the walk. <laughs> it was so cool. So oh, nice man. work. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. Really that. Yeah. And then um, you're also on the, um, I hope I don't say her name wrong, but Bronwyn uh, Keith Hines, her, her new single, the open water. Yeah. Yeah, just came out. Yeah, good, great stuff. Yeah, Bronwyn's such, yeah, she's such a great player. I love her and just a great friend too. So, oh, awesome. So let's get into how you got into mandolin. I mean, obviously, uh, if anybody's a fan of yours, and maybe even if they aren't familiar with all your stuff, they've probably at some point seen the video from Wood Songs um, of you and Sam Bush, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, it's like <laughs> just the best. And um, but obviously you had been playing before that video made it out there. So what got you into mandolin? Well, so um, my dad was always interested in music and had always just loved listening to music, but had always kind of wanted to learn. And I think he told me at one point when he was a kid, he always kind of hoped that he would be able to get a mandolin at some point, but they couldn't really afford one. And so um, my parents ended up building a house. Um, real close to my aunt and uncle, my great aunt and uncle. So my granny's sister. And uh, she married a man from Birdstown, which is where I grew up, Birdstown, Tennessee. And uh, and, and my mom just loved being over there in, in the summers as a kid. So she and my dad built a house, and I grew up being right next to them. So they were kind of like a second set of grandparents, really. Um, and so I would go in, and, and Junior would be playing fiddle, or mandolin or guitar and he was he was completely self-taught I mean he knew you know three or four chords on the the guitar could play things like wildwood flower and he would play fiddle down you know on his chest not even put it under his chin like real old timey and, <laughs> yeah. and would, would, would just play tunes tunes like maybe Arkansas Traveler um you know, and, and I remember him, him playing mandolin um, as well. And so I, I knew about the mandolin. Um, but then my dad really started getting into bluegrass. Um, he'd always liked it as a kid, but, you know, just 
kind of hadn't been listening to it. And I think when I was probably seven or so, he started getting really into it. And then he decided um, to learn to play guitar a little bit because my brother and I would sing in church and like we would hear like music like that, you know, so, so dad would just play guitar enough to back us up. And, uh, eventually he, uh, bought a mandolin and, um, I guess my uncle junior actually gave him a guitar to bring down to our house, which is kind of what initially started all this. But, um, you know, it just, it's kind of like once you start getting into any kind of hobby, and then you learn more about it and this grows and grows and grows. And my, my dad, you know, when he gets into something, he really gets into it. And so, you know, I remember just like nonstop bluegrass yeah. <laughs> that we were hearing around the house and, um, and think things like Dole Often and Quicksilver too. Some of those, those early albums with all the harmony singing, we were always really blown away by that. And, um, you know, so we started trying to learn to sing some of those harmonies and some of those songs and, would do those in church or, or just, you know, anywhere. And then, um, dad, I think got a mandolin, started taking some lessons and there would be these local jam sessions that would happen about 30 minutes from our house in the, the next town over. And he started going to some of those on the weekends. So I don't really remember if I had gone with him to any of them yet. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember he was trying to get my older brother into playing something so Cody was learning a little bit of guitar and there was a banjo at the house at one point and um I wanted to do everything my older brother did, you know, I just worshipped him. So I just was <laughs> like, Oh, I wanna play too, I wanna do something. And so I got a fiddle for Christmas, um and it was uh given to me by my great aunt and my uncle, uh, and my granny. And but it was just too big. It like it was a full size and I was tiny. I couldn't really reach anything on it. So my dad was like, yeah, we really need to get you a half size. So um, he said, in the meantime, though, there was this bullback mandolin. I don't know if you've seen, I'm sure you have seen those. We call them tater bug mandolins. Yeah, people would call them just the, yeah, like the, you know. Um, But my uncle Junior had one of those that was just down at our house. Um, and so my dad had his, you know, kind of nicer mandolin and sat there and he taught me on that little tater bug mandolin, my first tune. And, um, and basically he was saying, well, why don't I show you something on the mandolin? Because we'll get you a fiddle, which is what I thought. Well, I thought that's what I was going to learn because that's what I got for Christmas. (laughs) So he just said, well, in the meantime, you know, we'll try to find you a, a smaller one. But in the meantime, the mandolin and the fiddle are tuned alike. And he was learning a little bit himself. So he was like, well, you know, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can show you a little something here and then we'll get you a fiddle and you'll already know where to put your left hand. So I'm sure it was just a way to like get me not to be disappointed. You know, I was eight years old at the time and, you know, excited to have just gotten gotten my instrument so anyway but I started I learned the tune on the mandolin and it took a little while for me to actually get uh um, another fiddle like a smaller one and at that point something about the mandolin I just I went for it (laughs) you know it's just like okay well this is this is what I'm learning I mean I don't know maybe uh maybe if it had been fiddle first and that had really been the first thing I connected with it maybe it might have been a similar situation Maybe not, but something about the mandolin is just really exciting to start actually learning to play an instrument, and I just fell in love with it. Oh, man. What was that? Do you remember that first tune? Oh, yeah. Bowl them cabbage down. Oh, was it really? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's awesome. Mm-hmm.
So what were um? Yep. So was Sam was Sam one of the big guys that that you were really influenced by during this these young 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 early years of of Sierra Hall that you were working on his sort of stuff that you led to that Wood songs? Yeah. Well, actually, so I mean, if you're a, a mandolin player or even a fan of the mandolin at large, I mean, you you're gonna know who Sam Bush is. You're gonna find that out sooner or later. And <laughs> um, for me. I had this guy that I ended up taking lessons from about six months after I started. I was really fortunate because there wasn't anybody really in our area. I grew up in the smallest county in Tennessee and, you know, the, the town I grew up in, there's only about 900 people. It's really small and there's not any like music stores or anything like that. Um, so it was kind of like asking around and trying to really find somebody to give me lessons. Like who is that person? This was long before people were doing Skype or artist works <laughs> and things like that, you know? So right. it's kind of like, um, who, who is in within driving distance that, you know, <laughs> actually could, could, could give me lessons. And, and my dad was really, you know, learning to himself. And he taught me, you know, everything I learned the first six months was from my dad, which I'm really lucky to have gotten that. But he kind of realized that I was really into it. And so he kind of started focusing his energy on just trying to help me get better at it rather than, you know, putting that energy into himself, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. But oh, wow. um we we heard about this guy named Carl Bergeron who ended up giving me lessons and I would go to his house on um, Friday evenings before the jam we would go to. And so he lived in the same town as where the, the jam would happen at this old community center. And um, I ended up going over there with my dad and we'd take the video camera and we would record stuff. But, but you know, he hadn't really been playing mandolin very much. He He was working as a logger. So he had almost kind of like laid down the mandolin for a while, but he was, you know, by far the greatest mandolin player around, uh, had toured with, actually he played on a couple of those early, uh, Larry Sparks albums, oh, cool. um, the traveling album that has taken a slow train, like, oh, you know, yeah. uh, You've probably heard. Yeah. Really do that. But, but Carl is playing mandolin on that. And he's oh, the guy that out. I took lessons from as a kid. <laughs> That's cool. So, so he's a great player. But anyway, he was really a, a big fan of Sam Bush, too. So I remember, like, probably being introduced to Sam's music through him. And I mean, knowing who he was, but I knew he was a big, big Sam Bush fan. And then, of course, you know, we got a, um, I got my first Alison Krauss album when I was nine, which was the album Forget About It, uh, which Sam actually plays mandolin on and, and sings things on. And uh, Tony Rice albums were hugely influential, which Sam, Sam was on. So uh, I certainly knew about Sam and was a big fan. And I met him for the first time at IBMA when I was nine. Oh, cool. Um, I've been playing about a year. I got to go be part of this thing called Kids on Bluegrass, which they still, they still do every year at IBMA. Um, they have just a group of kids from, you know, all over the country that, that come and get to do like a little kids showcase um, thing. So I got invited to come and, and be part of that. And I'd never been to anything like that before. I mean, you know, being in my little town, I'd only been playing a year to go somewhere where it's like Ricky Skaggs walks off the elevator. You're like, what is going on? This is crazy. And so I remember like getting to, to meet Sam at uh, the Gibson Showcase. So Gibson Instruments had, um, this was back, it was in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. And uh, they had 
like a suite. It was in the hotel. So it was like a suite that was set up as their show, showcase room. And Sam was in there signing autographs and um, kind of hanging out at the booth. And so I got to to go and wait in line to talk to Sam. And, and he ended up actually jamming with me there. So oh, so I would actually got to meet and hang with him before the Wood Songs video that most people have seen. Uh, but that, you know. I don't think anybody's so I I'm pretty sure my parents videoed it, but I don't think anybody's seen that footage before. <laughs> I've not seen it in years. But but he jammed with me for like an hour and was oh, wow. like just couldn't have been nicer. And um, you know, as a nine year old kid who, you know, had spent the last year like intently working on playing mandolin and learning tunes to have somebody sit there and, and give me that kind of time was just unbelievable. It's so great about this this type of music. You know what I mean? Like to have access to players like, you know, like you said, like Sam Bush, he's there's if there's like a Mount Rushmore of mandolin players, he would definitely be on there. And the fact that, you know, in this genre of music, like you couldn't do that with like like I can't think of like any rock bands that I can even think of where you'd be like, I got to jam for like an hour with, you know, like somebody gave me that amount of time. But in bluegrass, you hear stories like that from all these interviews. Yeah, It's amazing. I think it's just built in. It's built into the culture of the music, which is awesome. In that, um, it's not just a performance style music. You know, um, it's a type of music that people really have as part of their way of life of just you know sitting around and jamming and playing and and doing it for you know no one but themselves. And so I think that there's kind of as a result of that, there's all these. Um, songs and tunes and I mean you know jazz is another style of music that's like that um where where there's sort of the repertoire that everybody learns and knows and thinks of as the traditional um base you know of of the music and so I think that's part of what makes it special too is because I could be nine years old and I have been learning all these tunes there's there's it's not just like let's just learn to play some chords and sing it's like here's this whole repertoire of tunes that you can start learning and so I don't I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many tunes I would have known by the age of nine I mean <laughs> couldn't have been that many but you know I was probably learning like something every couple weeks at that point if not every week as far as tunes and and so it allowed me to to have something to sit down and play with Sam Bush it's like okay let's play Big Mom Let's play Red Haired Boy. You know what I mean? There's yeah. these tunes that like oh, yeah, we, so great. a shared a shared uh, knowledge of repertoire, which is cool and kind of uh, gives that that cultural, you know, environment of being able to just jam and hang out and it not just be about performing on stage. What's great about the Wood Songs video is that, you know, again, you see this. This, this little girl with a mandolin and Sam, and you, I guess, you know, my initial expectation, and I show this video to people all the time who maybe don't really play bluegrass because I play a lot of, <laughs> I play with a lot of different people um, in Charleston here. And yeah, it might, yeah. might not just be a bluegrass gig. And that's one of the videos I love to show people because the best part about that video is it's not just like this kid going up there and you're like, you have an expectation of like, oh, this will be, this will be cute. But you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, this kid can really, really play already. You know what I mean? And it's amazing to see. Oh, and not only that, but it's amazing to see that what you've become. Like, it's obvious that there's something there, and it isn't just a person who just went off. You can now look back at this video and be like, yeah, now you have years of watching this person become 
inc- even more incredible through the years. Like you stuck with it, and you know, it's amazing. I think it's great. Oh man, well, I, I feel I appreciate that. I feel really fortunate that I was able to have those kind of opportunities as as young as I did. You know, I think it there's something really exciting. I mean, I think I would have stuck with it and, and loved it and kept work, working and playing no matter what. But I think there's something really um, amazing about you know meeting somebody like Sam Bush or meeting Chris Seeley or meeting Adam Steffi or whoever you know these players that I had really loved and adored um, I just was fortunate enough to meet some of them at a young age and and um, like you said to have that kind of access which therefore you know cultivates this environment of encouragement and belonging and feeling like you know uh, I wanted to keep getting better um, because I, I felt encouraged by all these people, you know, that, that this was something I could be, a, I could be a part of this family. I could, you know, um, there, you know, I, it's, I think, I think sometimes that the culture and, and community of, of the music that I was surrounded by made me want to do this as much as the music itself if that makes sense yeah, absolutely it totally does now did this because this is a few years too before like social media really really was you know blown up like you could oh yeah if, totally. if this just happened a few years ago there's a good chance instead of playing as much mandolin you could be endorsing some crazy product as well you know like <laughs> some sports drink or something you know <laughs> like whatever the fad is but like yeah. did it open some doors up for you after having that performance the wood songs performance yeah like did that all of a sudden did you, was were people kind of maybe reaching out or like because it's not an average performance by a little kid i mean there's definitely um you can tell that there's something special um already like you have got a gift well, I think anything like that, like it was a combination of things. So like, I remember the first band that ever got me on stage, the same year I actually met Sam, the, the first IBMA I ever went to, and I met Sam and played with him in the Gibson, you know, suite there, the little hotel suite. Um, I also got to get up on stage with this band called Third Time Out. Oh, yeah. I found her for Prince in the snow, that happy day that nearly lost her way. And uh, which, you know, was was a hugely influential bluegrass band to me growing up and a guy named Wayne Vincent plays mandolin still in that band and um and that was just that felt crazy because that was the first time I'd ever just had a hero invite me on stage you know and same thing like the next year Ricky Skaggs had me up on stage with him at IBMA and it's just like all this stuff that like I kind of thinking back on it now realize what an incredible opportunity these these things were um and then I met I met Ron Block who you know, I was the biggest Alison Krauss fan. I mean, if if you really want to say who, like, the biggest hero as a kid I could have possibly had. I mean, I had loads of heroes, don't get me wrong, but but something about, you know, Allison's music really spoke to me in this way that I just became the biggest fan. And um, I met Ron Block at IBMA the following year, 
I guess it was. And uh, he ended up telling Allison about me. And next thing I know, she calls my house and invites me to come play the Grand Ole Opry. And I'm what? 11 years old. And it's like <laughs> my, big, my, my, my biggest hero in the world has just called our house. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I just, like, it's insane to really think about. And I think, like, that opportunity to do that was also um, a way that I guess I was introduced to people as a kid in some ways, because it was on national television, it was on CMT, and um, a lot of people saw that, and, you know, it was shortly after that, that um, Ken Irwin from Rounder Records, you know, started kind of paying attention and following me around at um, IBMA, and ended up, you know, saying he wanted to sign me to the label, and, you know, just, and then, and then other things with, with Allison, like amazing opportunities that, that, uh, that she, she brought forth so I mean yeah I think it's a combination of things it's funny how how that works out sometimes you just kind of in the I, I watched this incredible interview with Ed Sheeran last night on YouTube and you know he was just talking about how like sometimes you know luck luck really is when preparation meets opportunity it's like you have some really really talented like there's people out there that are every bit as talented and more talented than I am that people will maybe never really know their name because, you know, whatever reason, maybe, maybe that's not what they're trying to do. They're not trying to, to play music as a career and they just love it. And they happen to be insanely talented or maybe people that really are out there, you know, practicing and working hard, but maybe the right opportunity has just not come their way yet, mm-hmm. you know? And so that all happens in different times and different stages. And, um, I think I was just lucky enough to have had some of those opportunities happen at a young age. And, and it happened at a time where I also really loved playing and singing and like was working on it a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I felt like when, when those opportunities came to, you know, to, to play with, with Allison on stage, I I already knew a bunch of her tunes, you know, because my dad (laughs) had said to me, you know, my dad, if I was ever getting lazy, would say things like, uh, you know, Sierra, because for whatever reason, I, I had a dream to play with Allison on the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. I don't know why. Maybe because we watched it as a kid, like as a kid, we, it, was all, it was on television all the time then, on national television. And so you know, we'd watch it on Saturdays or, or you know, whatever, tape it for the next day <laughs> watch it or whatever. And so I always thought, wow it'd be cool to, to get to play with her. And so like when I would draw, I drew pictures of myself on stage with, with Allison when I was, you know, before I met her, you know, I've got pictures when I was nine years old that my mom saved of me playing on stage with her at the Grand Ole Opry. And so my dad would say stuff like, you know, one of these days, Allison's going to call you to come play the Grand Ole Opry, but you're not going to be ready if you're not practicing. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not going to be ready, or don't you think you need to be learning some of these Adam Steffi solos so you oh. can play those with her someday? <laughs> oh my god! And gosh. so I would go, oh yeah, you're right. And so like I had this, uh, I had, I don't know. It's like I, I probably should ask him in my adulthood. I never have, but um, I don't know if my dad was just saying that stuff to kind of to get me to practice or if he really truly believed that would happen. I mean, I think we were all stunned it actually did, but it's just I I say all that just to say I really do think though that like um like as as Ed was talking about in that thing I was watching on YouTube last night, it's like, you know, I think that luck 
truly is like anybody that's had any real big success has a certain amount of luck on their side, like, mm-hmm. like the opportunity just came. But luck itself is not enough. You know, you have to have put in the work to really be ready to seize the moment and step up to the plate, you know. And so I think that's what I'm always trying to remind myself as a musician that, you know, the work, the work never stops, you know, whether whether you feel like you've got opportunity right in front of you or not. It may not be in this moment, but that doesn't mean it's not, you know, right around the corner. And if you just give up on working hard. When that opportunity comes, you don't want to not be able to seize that moment, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it's so obvious um, that you work hard because the progression from your first album to your newest album is just, uh, I mean, the first album's incredible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the first album, it starts with Secrets and it's oh, like, man, you sound like you. Adam Steffi playing mandolin and you sound like Alison Krauss singing. <laughs> you're just like, well, this isn't oh, fair. Man, well, <laughs> That's your first song well, on your first album. You're very kind to say that. <laughs> But um, but like the each album is a significant growth, and and we'll talk about that. Um, I've got some notes on that here. I don't want to jump too far ahead. But um, did you do? Did you then always know, like this is music is is what I want to do. Like I want to play music for a living. Uh yeah, one hundred percent. I great. mean, from the time I from the time I um started, like. I don't know how quickly into it, but I can't remember a time of playing music. Like, like, I guess that's the best way to put it is I can't remember a time not wanting to do it since I started. So I, you know, I'm sure right off the bat, it wouldn't have been like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. But I don't think it took me very long to just, and I think it's, it wasn't because I thought, Oh, I'm so good. Like people are going to want like care. It it wasn't about that at all. I think it was just more like, I love this. I, I, you know, especially as a kid, you really value your heroes in this like amazing way that like to look at, you know, these people that I loved and, and look at their album covers. Um, I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago about how everything is, just all the music's online with Spotify and, you know, Apple music and all these different streaming services and YouTube and how we, I mean, even me, I don't buy music enough. I don't actually have physical copies of, of, uh, I I have LPs more like old stuff, but, but newer things, there was something, there was something magical about being able to get a new CD like once a week or oh, something, man. you know, yeah. like on Friday to be able to, to be able to like go and pick out a new album and you'd be skimming, you know, for us, it was uh, going to Walmart. I mean, I grew up in such a rural port- part of Tennessee. There's not really, there wasn't any like record stores or anything like that close by. So Walmart used to actually have a decent selection of albums, including bluegrass albums, you know, they don't really now, but, but back, back then, it was like, I remember standing in 
uh, standing in the music section, and I used to always go get like all my favorite albums too and put them on the front row. Which <laughs> is a nerdy little kid thing to do, but I'd find I like like all the Allison albums. I loved them so much. <laughs> I'd pick out every Kraft album and I'd just stack the whole front row with all these albums. And I was like, this is what people need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. But but like not to sidetrack, but like. I think there was something, you know, going back to your, your question of like, did I know I wanted to do this? I really think that being able to like, look at these album covers and, and like tangibly hold them and, and read the credits and see who wrote the songs and who produced what and who played on what. And just kind of, I don't know. I dreamed of doing that. I dreamed of being able to like make my own albums and, and tour and and do what my heroes were doing. So I think I just came to adore all these musicians so much through the experience of listening to their albums that it just made me go, why would I want to do anything but this? <laughs> you yeah, know? So for sure. It didn't take long to kind of feel that and and um, try to try to achieve that, I guess. Yeah, and it's also you kind of like lived with that album then for like that week or whatever it was, you know what I mean? Like now with like all the streaming services, it's so easy to be listening to a song and here's something that reminds you of another song and next thing you know, you're 10 songs away from the song you started to listen to. I know, I know, it drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah, when you had a CD, like you listened to that CD. <laughs> you, well, you listened to the songs that you didn't even think you liked. You just listen to them. You just put it on and you, you listen to it. I mean, there's some of my favorite albums that I think really helped me grow the most as a, as a young musician were ones that I would put on. And I, I mean, I literally listened to like hundreds of times, like, like absolutely dove into where I could tell you every feel that every instrument did. I could sing you every solo. I had sat down and learned the mandolin parts from start to finish the best I could, at least, you know, not, not everything perfect, but like I was just going back to the source again and again and again. And I think that kind of deep dive is really um, special and important. And I feel like I was just talking to Justin about this. My husband, I was like, uh, I had listened to the new Taylor Swift album, like a couple times, literally all the way through. And I was just saying, you know, it's such a weird thing that it's like that album is kind of making waves or uh or my friend shawnee who actually engineered and co-produced my last album with me i was talking to her a couple of days ago about this very thing too and she said yeah it's kind of it's weird that the the thing that's groundbreaking right now about this taylor album is that people are actually listening to it all the way through like it's weird that that's groundbreaking it's sad that that's groundbreaking in today's day and age but i said i know even things that i think i really like that I listen to and think, wow, that's great. I really enjoyed that. I maybe have listened to two or three times and then there's so much to listen to. You get distracted and you move on to something else. It's like that kind of deep diving that I used to do, I feel like even I do less of. And and it kind of bums me out because I, I want to I want to give albums the kind of listening that I feel like they deserve sure. are really good. Absolutely. You know, I would hope that people would do that with my music and it's like, and I'm not even doing that with a lot of people's music. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing that I know it's the world we live in and I'm not trying to be old fashioned and I don't like it necessarily, but I know that's how it is. And I know we live in the digital age and streaming and all that. Um, but I do, 
I do miss the the days of, you know, always physically like having ownership of the music that you you get and you buy an album and you listen to all of it because you bought it and, you know, and you can come to appreciate things that you might not have appreciated in one or two listens. Oh, for sure. These days it's just easy to write something off if it doesn't, if you don't get it like right away. And that's frustrating to me too, because there's like a certain level of music that I think um, you can only start to understand by really giving, giving something multiple listens. You know, there's some albums that, that are meant to kind of deep dive. Yeah, on. you have to. Yeah, you, something you have to fall in love with. It's it's like, it's like yeah. it, you don't maybe appreciate it at first, but then it's got layers, you know, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other thing too is like in this digital age as well is like so many people have opinions about something ahead of time, and even though as much as you want to not paying the attention like i'm going to listen to whatever album's coming out that i'm looking forward to regardless but there's always that little kernel of if people are like oh it's definitely so-and-so's new album just not that oh, great know. you know but then that's kind of in your head as you're going into it like wow these people are saying it's not great and it's even if you don't want it to i still think there's some sort of weird psychological influence in your head is like now it's like well now this album better impress me <laughs> you know which is so sad or or it goes or it goes the same way of everybody being like oh this is so amazing, so amazing. And you know what? It might not speak to you, and then you start going, what's wrong with me? Why am I not liking this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why is it that everybody else likes this? I think there's a, like a, also a bandwagon kind of deal that can happen where it's like, I don't know, if something gets you know, talked about in a certain light or whatever, that, that sometimes you know, everybody just starts going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the cool thing to like yeah. right now. Yeah, and for so, sure. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Weird times. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange. So, it's a strange time to be both a creator and a consumer of music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then you went to school for music as well. Yeah, I went to Berkeley for. Um, um, I, I ended up doing a two-year program. I did a thing called an artist diploma program. I originally kind of went in with a scholarship that was for four years, but then after my first year, which was kind of crazy because. All of it kind of came together in a way where I, I wasn't planning on going to music school. It really wasn't on my scope at all at that point because I was mostly playing bluegrass music and, and had had enough opportunities that I felt like I could go out and tour some and go ahead and just kind of do that as my job. And um, it was probably my junior year um, that I got an email from forget exactly somebody like maybe the dean from the school um that basically just said you know hey they saw a video on youtube of me playing and and just said you know we wanted to reach out and say we've got this great music program we've got this great acoustic uh music program that we're starting here and and um they had had uh, a mandolin major available or I say mandolin major as your principal instrument, like mandolin mm -hmm. being a principal instrument for a, a couple years at that point, but it was really new for Berkeley to have that in the kind of more acoustic string band kind of scene. But uh, they said, if you are considering going to music school, we'd really love to have you come here and we could guarantee you a full, you know, tuition scholarship. And I was just like, well, okay, <laughs> maybe yeah. I should think about this a little bit. So so, but, but even at the time I was just kind of like, I don't think that's what I want to do. 
Um, and it's not because I didn't see the value in school. I mean, I, I always tried to make good grades in in my entire, you know, middle school, high school experience. Um, always, you know, was an honor roll student, but mostly I think just because I felt like, you know, I didn't want to disappoint my teachers and I didn't want to, you know, not try to be the best I could be at it. But I also knew since I was eight that I just wanted to go play music. And so in my mind, I was like, well, I've kind of been waiting. I've waited my whole life to have a chance to really actually go do this. And now I don't know if I want to like keep putting that off. Um, but, but I, I actually talked to uh, Allison about it and I knew very little about Berkeley, which I know sounds crazy, but it was like before all the social media stuff was really like it is today. It just sure. wasn't quite like that even 10 years ago, you know, where it's like everybody you know, knows more about Berkeley and they've had more time to establish themselves in, you know, our world a little bit more to where it's, it's more of a destination for people who grew up playing bluegrass and grew up playing, you know, acoustic music like that. But, um, Allison was like, Oh gosh, well, you should, you should really think about that. I remember her, her saying, you know, you should just go check it out. Like she's like, I'll go with you. Like, let's just go check it out. Oh wow! (laughs) You know, at the very least. Yeah. It was like a really big encouragement to at least give it an opportunity. And like, you know, she said to me, uh, your career is always going to be here. Your career is not going anywhere. And she said, I really think you should at least check it out and go tour the school. Just like, you know, don't write it off because she said it could be this really incredible opportunity. And uh, especially if like, you can essentially just go for free. Like she was like, just go for a year. She, she literally said, if it sucks, you could always come home. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of true, I guess, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I ended up kind of just deciding to, to go, um, I was going to defer for a year. I had like for the first time on my own, I had this um, six week tour that I was going to go do. It was like the longest tour with me and and my band at the time Mm -hmm. um, with Uncle Earl and this other band called the Dixie Beeliners. And it was like a little package tour thing that we were all going to go do in like November, maybe uh, October, November. And so first off, even if I had, you know, decided to go, I, like, how can I miss six weeks of school right. when I'm just a brand new college student? So I thought, I don't know how that's going to work. So the deal was with the full tuition scholarship, I would be able to defer a year. So I didn't have to start in the fall. I could have waited till the next fall mm-hmm. to start. But then they called me and ended up telling me that they had decided to give me this thing called the presidential award. Um, which was not only full tuition, but it was, you know, housing and oh, wow. food and like everything included. Wow. So I just, and they had, and they're like, we've never given this to a bluegrass musician before. You'd be the first. And this is, you know, anyway, I just kind of went, oh man, okay. But the <laughs> thing was with that is I had to start in the fall. Yeah. You couldn't oh, defer wow. it. So they, they like, it was kind of like I had to, I had to accept this incredible offer or decline it and not know if it would be offered to me again later, basically knowing there was a chance they might not offer it to me again. So I was just kind of like, okay. So anyway, I decided to just go for it. They also were great. You know, they said, we understand you've got this tour booked. We'll work with you. We'll figure it out. Wow. They couldn't have been more supportive. So in every way I have to, to say that Berkeley was, incredibly nurturing of like allowing me to still continue to balance 
doing some of the things that I was already trying to do or if I had a cool opportunity to go do something like they couldn't have been more encouraging and, and supportive and trying to find a way to allow me to have an experience as a student, but also not have to completely just like put everything else on pause. That's amazing. You know, for four years. And so it was incredibly amazing. And I, the part of why I had never considered going to music school is because I, I didn't dream that that could ever be the case. Yeah, yeah. Like growing up in a small town, everybody knew I played music since I was in the third grade and everybody knows everybody. And like, if I needed to, you know, be excused from school for a couple days here and there. It's like my teachers were always like accommodating and tried to help me get my test done early or whatever, you know? And, and I thought there's no way college is going to be that way. Cause right. I'm going to be in this big city of Boston, <laughs> you know, totally. Like, which yeah. was also another big thing to really consider about, you know, going to school is moving to Boston. I didn't think I wanted to be in Boston. I wanted to go to Nashville. Yeah. Which, you know, it was only two hours from where I grew up, but I always had dreamed of living in Nashville and and being a little closer to the music scene here. So I don't know, Boston just it, all of it kind of came to me in a way that like wasn't what I had planned in my mind. It just all the the opportunity kind of presented itself, and it ended up being something that felt like I couldn't really pass up. So. So I decided to do it, and um, it was like a really overwhelming experience in some ways and, and definitely pulled me out of my comfort zone just personally, uh, musically, all those things, and in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the experience the experience of just going to Boston um, in, in that whole time period, I feel like, was just as valuable as anything musically I could have learned. <laughs> that makes sense. Sure, yeah. And absolutely. I think that's the case with a lot of people that go off to college and you know, it's like your first time really being out. I mean, I was seventeen when I graduated, so you know, I moved before my eighteenth birthday to Boston and it just, you know, I don't know, seems seems kind of crazy yeah. looking back on it now. Um, I bet. you know, how time has flown since then. But uh yeah, I ended up doing a two-year program, though, called an artist diploma program that was cultivated after um, after accepting this four-year scholarship. They they then presented this idea to me to to try to do this thing that was pretty new, um, a pretty new idea. And so I was almost like a guinea pig for this program that they were starting to do officially, so... Were there some other uh, mandolin players there that you knew ahead of t- that when you got there, you were like, oh, hey, you're here? Yeah, Jake Jolliffe was there. Dominic Leslie was there. Oh, geez. Well, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an amazing time. I mean, Mike Barnett um, on fiddle, Bronwyn, uh, Keith Hines, that's who I, I met Bronwyn at Berkeley. Um, Serge Rose was living in Boston, going to NEC at the time. Um it was kind of an incredible time to be there. Eric Robertson, um, Dash Weisbouch, um, gosh, you know, <laughs> a big a big list of people really yeah. that were just Courtney Hartman, um, dear friend of mine. So yeah, it was it was kind of a an epic time to to be part of that whole scene up there and um and for them to have started the American Roots program. I think the first year I got there was the year they started it. So that was kind of cool um, to just see the school take a focus on 
you know, this genre of music that we all love so much. And I mean, I was, I was part of that community, but of course for me being there, I was, I wasn't really in any of the bluegrass classes uh, initially or anything like that. I was just trying to, trying to do other things that I hadn't had the experience of doing. You know, I got, I'd been playing bluegrass for, you know, a long time. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What are some of the other styles of music? Because it's, it's, it's obvious that you um you definitely listened or listen and listen to other styles of music especially between your um i think your first two albums then when you get to weighted mind it, there's like a uh, a incredible uh i don't want to say difference but the kind of uh, kind of just in in songwriting in composition and um you know it's it's not so much it's still bluegrassy i think but it's definitely like a, you've been listening to something else besides bluegrass you know yeah well it's interesting because yes I think that's true I think that uh a lot of stuff had kind of been a part of me slash swirling around inside my musical mind for a long time but I just hadn't really had a place to like put put it if that made sense like at the time I don't know why I would have felt this way I just kind of felt like okay well I'm playing you know the guys that play with me or are, are in a bluegrass uh, it's a bluegrass ensemble, and I just sort of felt like I was writing stuff but wasn't necessarily recording it um, just because I didn't feel like it fit with maybe the collection of other things I was trying to do. But even going back from things that, that eventually became part of Weighted Mind, I remember writing Stranded, which is the opening piece on Weighted Mind. Um, minus the lyrics, that was Dale Fleck's idea to to have me just write a lyric in there somewhere. But the whole main part of of Stranded, I wrote that when I still lived at my parents' house. Oh wow! Berkeley. Queen of Hearts instrumental thing uh-huh. at my parents' house before I ever went to Berkeley. No I kidding. think a lot of people probably think that like I had this like kind of crazy shift of musical direction through, you know, working with Bela, and which was amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like working with him did open my world in a lot of ways to um, the idea of just embracing all that stuff that I had already been kind of working on for a long time and, and kind of helping me peel back the layers and, and, you know, shine a light on it. Um, I feel like, you know, Bela was incredibly helpful in, in all that, but a lot of this stuff, um, and then of course, don't get me wrong. I wrote plenty of stuff between, you know, Daybreak and, uh, Way to Mind too. Oh, sure. But I do feel like, I do feel like a lot of those things and those influences had kind of been there all along. I just hadn't really presented it to anyone yet. <laughs> and I don't really know why, to be honest. Is it? Do you think it's partially because, I mean, bluegrass as open as a lot of the players are, um, can some the the listeners though hold it so dear to them, um, the resistance to go outside of that box is that is that a consideration maybe, 
you know, from like, oh man, I mean, it might have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it was. I mean, I don't think I ever had anybody trying to put me in a box, to be honest. I think maybe I kind of did myself because I just thought, well, here's there's this kind of like structure, this thing that, you know, when you make a bluegrass album, it's kind of like this and, you know, yada, yada, this is kind of stuff that'll work for this. And, um, and at the time, that just felt like my direction, even though I was like interested in all these other things, too. It just like the thought of putting it on a record or going to play certain stuff at like this festival or that festival does that make sense right and so i don't know i don't know why i i don't think i worried about it i just don't think it was like i literally remember at one point saying you know well here's this song i wrote but um i don't know if i'll ever record it but and then like it's so dumb too because like it ended up you know i'm sure being something i did later record but you know it's just (laughs) things 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 like that that you can kind of tell yourself sometimes. And what's interesting is like once I made the Weighted Mind album, I actually felt like in some ways I was more embraced by the bluegrass community than ever before. Oh, cool. <laughs> you know, like uh, um, like the Weighted Mind, like a, an example would be, you know, I'd made these two bluegrass albums that I was, you know, proud of or whatever, but then the Weighted Mind album was nominated for the album of the year at IBMA. And I remember thinking, huh, that's interesting. Cause like, I wouldn't have really necessarily thought that this would be the album that would be embraced that way. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. But like, um, I, I think in some ways, yeah, the, you know, people can, people can um, surprise you sometimes, you know, it's yeah. like, I think I finally just went, okay, uh, this is an album that I feel like I need to put out and need to do and put this part of my songwriting and playing at the forefront and kind of peel away the layers of your traditional bluegrass ensemble. And I don't feel like I really got any kind of crazy pushback in a negative way. Like a lot of people really talk about that. I I never really felt like I got that. I felt like it was, um, you know, I got a lot of encouragement from you know, people that you might be surprised by, if that makes sense. So sure, you just never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I listened to it, my first thought was like, "This is the most courageous thing that she could have ever put out." I mean, this is like, this is somebody who is like um, embracing all this talent and and finding. I mean, because your first two albums are, I mean, they're so good. They're 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 excellent. I mean, those are albums that people are going to buy or have bought, and you've gotten them to listen to that might be the first album somebody ever bought that put them on that journey to discover like sam bush and bill monroe you know that deep dig you go into because that's it's it, they're killer you know it, like oh man thank you yo no absolutely and and before i um go get off track on that too i'll, I'll continue my thought but i listened to, i just i mean the first track and you're like oh wow this is gonna be awesome i mean it's like watching somebody like uh um, like a metamorphosis of sorts. You know what I mean? Like, oh, here comes all <laughs> this stuff. And like, it, now you're going to see like what Sierra Hall's made of, which even leads to 25 trips. I mean, again, like you see this growth now. So I'm super excited to see your next stuff because, you know, you could have done Daybreak Part 3 or, you know what I mean? Like you could have done Secrets and Daybreak and, and the next album, if you sure. just stuck to that, to that same sort of uh, format, it would be incredible. No doubt about it. But then to hear Weighted Mind to be like, oh, wow, she's definitely uh, she's going for something a little bit different here. And you're like inventing something in a sense. And I thought it was amazing. 
Oh man. Well, that means a lot. I really, really appreciate it. I think, I think there's just something to be said about finally just trying to make something that you feel connected to that feels like, you know, the kind of sincere, honest part of yourself to put forth. I mean, like you said, I think I could have, I could have gone in and and made another, you know, daybreak part two, but like, I think that, um, like it wouldn't have been fulfilling completely to me. It's, and, and, and it's, uh, I love bluegrass. I love that. I wouldn't even say like, that's just some insanely traditional record. You know, there's a few things on, on both of my first two records that aren't, you know, they're not Bill Monroe records, but sure, like, sure. but there's a bluegrass ensemble. They're, they're that kind of, you know, Krauss influenced, uh, bluegrass thing. And, um, and I feel perhaps most of like that's, it's the thing I've been doing since I was a kid. So of course there's like a comfort in that, you know, a comfort in like knowing what that would look like. Like if I think about going in and if I was going to go make a bluegrass album right now, uh, another kind of vocal bluegrass album, mm-hmm. it's like, I kind of go, I know how to do that. Sure. I know how to like, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> whether people <laughs> like it or not, you know, that's all, that's all of course subject to taste and what you like or don't like. But I feel like as far as being comfortable, like, you know, I've, I've played in that ensemble enough to know how to kind of guide that and know what that looks like before I even go into it. I could imagine really what that would sound like. Um, with making an album like 25 trips, I didn't completely go into that album knowing what everything was going to sound like. And, um, that's kind of the case with like a lot of things as I move forward I didn't really know what the way to mind album was going to be like so it's kind of interesting being in a place where you kind of move outside of your box a little bit which is I think healthy as a musician and exciting while at the same time has moments of of you know being like what the heck there's so many ways this could go I don't know how it's going to go or how it should go until you kind of just get into it and then you kind of figure it out along the way Wow. Sierra Hull, part one. What a way to kick off the second year. Uh, The next episode, just as good. Uh, We get into the recordings and some technique stuff and and some more amazing stuff. But what a great background on Sierra Hull. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you so much for a successful first year. Thank you to Sierra for doing this. This is, she was so gracious with her time. Be sure to check out uh, Caleb's uh, lessons starting up here starting this Saturday. Again, 10% off if you do mandolins and beer. And um, Peghead Nation, Northfield Mandolins, Mandolin Cafe. Uh, oh, yeah. Stay tuned. Friday, first, uh, well, I shouldn't say first, but track by track coming up. We'll be announcing that tomorrow. Woods with. Cheers, everybody.